Hi, and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's guest is Tiff Stevenson, friend of the podcast. In fact, one of the best friends of the podcast. We talked about everything from competence to sexual attractiveness to online engagement. Uh, Tiff Stevenson has a special online. It's called Madman, and it's available online. Follow her on Instagram, Twitter to get the links. Uh, tell her I sent you. Uh, thank you, everybody who's e- been emailing me. Thank you, everybody who has subscribed to the Patreon. The trilogy is coming up on 100,000 downloads, so please tell your friends, and then I'll be able to hit an arbitrary number that will make me happy. I don't get more money for it, but it will make me feel good. Uh, I'm trying something new for the Patreon subscribers, which is that this episode is the same as previous episodes, that you're not going to get anything less. Uh, but if you are a Patreon subscriber at anything from the $1 level a month, $1 a month level. Uh, anything up from there, there's a bonus extra bit of the podcast where I talked with Tiff about Eleanor Roosevelt quotes and what she would like you to be thinking about today. So if you are a subscriber, you can get that. And if not, you just get the normal podcast. So nobody has lost anything. We're all good. We're all happy. I will talk to you again next week. Bye. So who are you and what are you drinking? <laughs> I'm Tiff Stevenson and I'm currently drinking nothing. Because we've moved tables. We have moved tables. We're in here in Muswell Hill in a very nice brasserie. Coat, coat brasserie. Coat brasserie. Who now pay their staff the tips. Yes. And it was like quite quiet when we came in and uh, then some ladies came in and started talking about Instagram behind us. Yeah. So, so we've, we've moved. moved. And the cappuccino machine may go off occasionally in the background. Don't mind but it's a bit nice of ambiance. Have a, yeah. I like Ambiance. Uh, What have you been up to? What have you been wrestling with recently? What have I been up to? Oh, so firstly, I have been in Los Angeles. Um, I came back before these fires started, which is really, really awful. I've been sort of following that on the news. Um, Yeah, I've been in LA for, for a few weeks. So just out there meeting with some managers and some agents and stuff and doing that thing doing the thing doing the la thing finger gunsing as i call it (laughs) yeah finger guns (laughs) conversations (laughs) yeah it's interesting in la actually how quickly people assess whether you're worth talking to it's really good for me because a lot of the time my gut tells me if i like someone um, and this way in Los Angeles, it's backed up by their immediate looking over your shoulder. <laughs> if you are someone that cannot help their career. I met a couple of people at various things and they couldn't have been like, and I was introduced by friends of like, she's a really funny comic, you know, yeah. and I could just other comics and act other performers, you know, and just like them kind of glazing over. And then the contrast to that is meeting amazing people who were so great. And I was like, God, there, there seems to be no in between here seems to be people that I really love and I go well these will these will be my people in LA yeah and then people who I'm like I hate you I really, immediately really hate you. yeah yeah I mean that's a very efficient way of going through the world yeah yeah I, I never know if I like people or not oh there's our waitress should we tell her what's going uh, on hello hi yes. sorry we just moved over here because we're that's all right that's could I order a creme brulee yeah thank you yes yeah sorry, you. sorry. <laughs> um, uh, so we all know I'm getting a creme brulee now yeah, that's I'll what have you're to drinking. Work that off later. Delicious. <laughs> yeah, so so it just is it's interesting. Also, there's a lot of um, in LA. There's quite a few actors who are kind of of the opinion that you know too many Brit actors are coming over, taking the parts. Oh, coming like, over here, yeah. taking our jobs. Yeah, like you shouldn't be coming over here with your training and your movable faces. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, so there we, there's the vocal fry again. That's all, that I encompass every every aspect of the worst LA human being is in my 
American one person, yep. yeah, one person who I meet who has the vocal fry. I have a friend who is a handsome young man who is now trying to break into LA, and he got told uh, that if he gets his teeth fixed, he can play ugly on American TV. <laughs> if you get your teeth fixed, you can play ugly on American TV. Even to play ugly, you need to have perfect teeth. Yeah, and. Can you imagine being the person whose job it is to say sentences like that to human beings? <laughs> well, I'm not skinny enough to play skinny and I'm not plus size enough to play plus size. Yeah. So I sort of fall somewhere in... Normal? In the, Normal. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm huge <laughs> in LA. By LA standards, I'm pretty big. Like literally in every sense. I took a photo with, with uh, some friends uh, out one night and I, I, I was about a foot taller than everyone and about five sizes bigger. Oh, wow. <laughs> So, like, L.A., when I say I'm big in L.A., I mean, that's no joke. Um, but, yeah, I, last time I went, I d- I've had my teeth straightened, not specifically for L.A., but just because it was a thing that was bugging me. And I met a few people who were like, they're adorable. Your teeth are adorable, which means that is ugly. <laughs> and the, the, what hope is there? Because there's no roles for uggos anymore. Now, I'm not saying I'm an uggo. But if you look at Margot Robbie playing, you know, Elizabeth the first and Tonya Harding you're like leave some roles for the uggos stop like taking these incredibly beautiful supermodel women and making them look ugly for a part because that leaves no ugly people left to play yeah the the, I've always sort of found that it's sort of a slightly alienating thing when a character is playing ugly in a movie who isn't ugly yes because there's a subliminal message there of like even ugly people aren't good enough to play ugly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and actually, look, Tonya Harding isn't ugly. Elizabeth the first. I don't know. Didn't know her personally. Uh, well, I mean, she had pockmarks, didn't yeah, she? she? From had, using lead paste on her face. On her face, yes. And they show that in the film. But, like, Margot Robbie is exceptionally beautiful. Yeah. So could we have someone a little bit more average looking? Yeah. I'd consider myself average. So. Well, there's, there's, sort of, there's two arguments to that. One is, you know, Hollywood is a fantasy and you want beautiful people in fantasies and that's why would I want to see normal-looking people? I could see normal-looking people walking down the street. And then there's this other argument of, yeah, but, like, normal people are interesting. Why can't we look at normal people? And also, you don't have to be beautiful to be a good actor. Yes. I think... Uh, you know, that you can act beautiful. If you look at these kind of 1930s, 1940s, 1950s stars, particularly some of the men, Humphrey Bogart is not actually a good-looking man. No. But he acts so dynamically and he acts so powerfully and he does this kind of real masculinity that he can convey through the camera. And he's attractive in that way because he's able to act yes. attractive. Yeah, but, but Lauren Bacall was a knockout. Yeah, that's <laughs> so true. So the, the counterpart to that is it's always been okay for men to be characters mm. and to increase in value as they age. The, the Chris Pine film has just come out, Outlaw King, yeah. which I haven't seen on Netflix yet, but there's been a lot of talk about the fact that he hangs dong. That's how you can tell I've been in America, by the way. That he what? Hangs dong. That's how they... Oh, that he does Chris full Pines. frontal male, yeah, yeah. male nudity. yeah. He's hanging down, like we wow. would say, getting his cock out. Yeah. So, <laughs> so he's 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 got full frontal nudity in that, and he's like, no one's saying anything about my female co-star being nude. And I was like, how about no one's saying anything about the fact that she's nearly twenty years younger than you? Like, and people are going, oh well, we need it for historical accuracy. I suppose it makes sense that he could be a dad, and that like this is, but it's historically accurate. It's not. I mean, you know, Robert the Bruce's wife was. Uh, 10 years younger than him. Yeah. So when they got married, 
she was 18, he was 28. Yeah. So that's the difference. So actually, technically, we've regressed. My favorite like one Like history was, was more forward-thinking than I, us. <laughs> I, wrote an article, uh, I wrote an article for SBS Comedy where I did the numbers on women playing actors' fathers. Uh, mo- mothers, mothers, sorry. Right. Women oh, yeah. playing the mothers of characters. And I think the most striking one was Alexander with Colin Farrell. And, and Angelina, Angelina Jolie, Jolie. Is she who like was a year older six than him? years older than him, playing yeah. his mother. Mm. And it's like, yeah, that's that is an odd thing. Like, we it's become normalized, but that's a really strange. Yeah, it's become normalized, but it's it's regressive. Like I say, ten years is not twenty. And also, what what's actually happened is Chris Pine is probably too old to play Robert the Bruce. He's thirty nine. Yeah. So what you probably should have done was get a younger actor. Then you could have had an actress in her twenties. And a guy maybe in his late 20s, early 30s. Yeah. To play that period of his life that they're talking about. Because actually, Robert the Bruce's wife, when she was um, sort of kidnapped or captured, she was 35 years old. And then she was held prisoner and she died at 42. Yeah. So if you're going to show that period, why have you got a 22-year-old girl doing it? It's sort of mad. Yeah. Um, but the fuss isn't about that. The fuss is about him hanging dong. <laughs> But it's so ingrained now at this point. I mean, wasn't Maggie Gyllenhaal turned down to play Liam Neeson's love interest? Yes. In something. For being too old. For being too old. So she's the same sort of age as me. Yeah. Yeah. When when he's... In his 60s. I mean, it's insane. Yeah, it is. And it's one of those things that seems so normal because it's been so normalised. Yes. But age... And and when you make a... This is one of the interesting things that I've been thinking about is that, that... part of the backlash to things like the Me Too movement or whatever it happens to be, this identity politics movement, there's a, there's a justified backlash and there's un, an unjustified backlash. And the unjustified backlash is about just some somebody telling you that you've been all, always doing this really annoying thing that you didn't realise was really annoying and your reaction to that. Yes. Someone's like, ugh, you know, you find out, for example... I, don't, I, I can't think of an example uh, that you n- never clean up after yourself. Right. And you just never have. It's not something you've ever thought to do and then somebody draws it to your attention and you feel ashamed. Yes. And you feel guilty about it. And I was thinking about this in the context of like the Judeo-Christian idea of shame and guilt versus the Buddhist idea of shame and guilt. Uh, the, there's a quote from the Buddha which is that uh, shame is the guardian of society. So part of the kind of theological framework the metaphysics of it is this idea that with with karma which is the idea of there's every there will be a consequence for all of your actions to oversimplify it that there is always going to be a consequence for any any one of your actions if you do something wrong being told that you've done it wrong is really useful because you can't erase the wrong but you can avoid doing it again learning is built in because it's not being added up for some later payback. Yes. Whereas in the Judeo-Christian framework, you're either damned or you're not, more or less. Yeah. So if someone tells you you've done something wrong, shameful, that's like, it's so much more extreme. It's putting you into a corner where you feel forced to defend yourself. Yeah, doing a bad thing makes you a bad person. There's less of this idea of a, a work in progress or there's less... Uh, there's less malleability about it. You're, you're defined by your actions in a way that is more extreme. 
Well, this, like we were saying about identity politics, um, it goes beyond now, like, people define themselves by an aspect of their personality that then becomes who they are. And sometimes I go, oh, do I do it with, like, being a woman? Am I so, like, kind of trapped into this? Then women, when people attack women, I feel like my identity is being attacked. Yeah. Does that make sense? So, yeah. you know, whatever that is, is whether you identify as left-wing or, you know, how you sexually identify or anything like that, you know, then it becomes, you become so defensive of... Yeah, and it's sort of, it, because it's, it, we live in a complex universe, it's a very simple idea that, you know, you receive uh, input from the world. And a lot of that input is is dictated by who you appear to be, yeah. so or how you identify, not how you identify, but how people identify you, right? Yes. So they look at you, they go, "You're a woman. I'm going to treat you like a woman." These are the ways in which I treat a woman, and yeah. you resent that. Yes. And so when somebody does something mean to you, you're like, "It's because I'm a woman." You can see it; yeah. it's obvious. Yeah. And that's the same for people of colour and that's the same for people of lower classes or whatever it Yeah, I have it be. with class as well. Like I, I, I met Ben Fogel. This will be a central part of my new show that I'm writing. But the incredible thing that I found about it was I, I was, every part of me wanted to like hate him because he's so posh and I'm so working class and he's so lovely. But when he first kind <laughs> yeah. of opened the conversation... He was talking about how he'd done really badly at school and he was saying how we learn or the curriculum needs an overhaul, which I I 100% agree with. You know, I don't think learning by rote is good for everyone. It was good for me. But he, he basically said he failed all of his exams. He was like, I just failed. I just failed all of my exams. My geography exam, I got an N. Um, I don't even know what that is. And I went, it's the top of a compass. That's probably why you failed, right? <laughs> like, and I say this on the radio. But then he was like, but I just did okay. I just did okay anyway, in spite of failing. And I was like, because you're a man, because your family's got money. And oh, I feel like every single opportunity I've got has been so hard fucking won. Yeah. That I, but he was so nice and it's not his fault. No. But at the same time, that rage, you know, and that is part of my identity, that kind of like working class anger and struggle and what if that's taken away, you know? What they call a chip on your shoulder. Yeah, yeah. A, whole yeah, p- a chip from a chip shop. It's, it's, uh, it's really, <laughs> Not it's, a triple cooked it's a really hard <laughs> fine dining thing chip. to work your way through, right? It's a hard thing to work your way through because the re- it's, it's like when you're a, um, an unpopular kid at school and then there's a certain proportion of unpopular kids at school who embrace their unpopularity, who go that kind of hard goth, or uh, you see it in many, not all, but many disabled comedians who go very, very dark right. in their comedy. They kind of want to, because they are perceived by general society as to be vulnerable, to be confronting, yeah, simultaneously confronting and vulnerable. That that people are confronted by them, then they capitalize on that. They make it their own. They uh, reclaim it or take power from it. Yeah, you think I'm shocking? Just walking down the street. Let me tell you about this baby in a blender joke. I'll shock yeah. you, kind of thing. And then, it sort of, I felt like for a while, you know, I've been watching some Star Trek. For a while, the project was that everyone would be the same. That we would be, you know, color blind and gender blind, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And then people realized that we couldn't be that or we weren't that or we were not able or we hadn't done it yet or we hadn't done it quickly enough. I think we've regressed. I see, th- again, yeah. again, I think we've regressed because if you, 
had a bit of bombshell about this, but if you look at the 70s, when, or the 60s and 70s, now great time of social change, civil rights movement in America, Studio 54. Yeah. The whole ethos behind Studio 54 was no one has labels. We don't apply labels here. You can be whoever you want. You can be, you know, an 80-year-old go-go dancer. You can be a black gay guy. You can be a straight white woman. You can be whoever you want. We don't apply labels to it. Everyone just come here and be. It's open for everyone. Now we're so desperate to have labels on every single thing. And I read Twitter biogs and everything's on there. It's like, you know, I'm cis female. I'm a mother. I am, you know, um, queer positive. I'm refugee positive. I'm, you know, like a list of things. I'm like, you've missed off whether you like cheese. I mean, there's so (laughs) many things here. And look, I'm all of those things. I have a T-shirt from Amnesty and... I don't want to be like, I do a lot of work with Amnesty. But, um, <laughs> but it has on it, you know, like, this is what a human rights activist looks like. And I just can't wear it out in public. Or, and, and I've got a badge that says, I support refugees. And I think, well, I might as well walk around wearing a T-shirt that says, I'm not a cunt. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't want to have to state that I'm into these basic positions of humanity. And I do. I get why people wear them. And I get all of that. But I think we've become so obsessed with shouting these things that you go oh are we actually is it about the showcasing of so is it about saying in your twitter bio that you're pro all of these things and that you would be anti-brexit yeah but at the, why do you need to tell that to everyone why does that need to be at the front of because we're obsessed with putting labels on ourselves almost like we're products on a shelf and if we become products as individuals, then we're easier to market to, we're easier to be manipulated yes. and all of that. Yeah, I think so. I think that might, ha- might have something to do with it. Certainly, it is this thing of, of rather than... When you say to somebody nowadays, who are you? They'll tell you what they are. Right. And it's understandable because the world is telling them what they are. We are being told what we are. And, and, and I don't know what the right what the right response is like my idealistic utopian world is everyone treats people as people and people are people and people you know yeah. you take people on their terms acknowledging their life experience as part of the formation you know if you meet someone who's like maybe unwantedly aggressive you can think oh well they've had a hard childhood or whatever it happens to be but you you do those things after you've met them yes you know, then that's when that kind of maybe their identity comes into play. You meet them, you know them as a person. There are characteristics that come out at you, and you're like, oh well, I guess that might be because they're a woman, or you know, yeah. I, I, again, I, I don't have an answer for this. <laughs> well, this it, happens in comedy quite a lot, and I always thought like, if I have to say what it is on the tin, then I failed. If I have to state that this is a feminist left wing viewpoint, that my show is these things, yeah then I failed because you should just get that from watching it when you listen to the ideas I don't want to spoon feed it to people and it seems that's what's necessary within the world of Edinburgh and everything else you know I would like it to just kind of stand on its merits and for you to watch it and go oh it's clear oh she's a humanist oh she kept you know like even this idea that feminist still is somehow intrinsically linked to hating men like I did this video for The Economist and I got so much shit from MRA people and I was like I'm an advocate for men I love men I'm engaged I'm invested I've got you know 25 shares in woke dude bros I'm whatever (laughs) you know I care about what happens to men I'm for men anyone that listens to us on this knows that but immediately someone sees the word feminist 
on that video and it's kind of like me too ah like man hating the fat, reactionary fat, fat comedian so that I hates think, men is yeah, what it said relentlessly this thing of of tribalism which again is becoming an overused term but that that you can say one thing about you and people think they know everything about you I, i've i had this and i've been lucky don't get me wrong i've been very lucky with my stuff online most people are very nice but i got a reaction to somebody in america who'd watched the resistance show and I'd written and named that show before the resistance became the anti-Trump movement, but he had clearly labelled me as, and in fact mentioned this a number of times in the email, that I was a snowflake and, and told me that Luis, who's the character in the show, who's a gardener who lived in the house I grew up in... Yes, I and, remember, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, was, ..who was missing some fingers and he'd been a, a revolutionary uh, for a number of good reasons... <laughs> Uh, he'd been captured and tortured by Pinochet. His family was killed. All of this stuff. This man said, well, he's a socialist. He deserved to have his fingers cut off. Oh, Don't you know what God. a poison socialism is? Socialist kills the Jews in Pittsburgh. A whole lot of things. But the tone he was taking was this kind of educating me, this righteous snowflake. And from my perspective, that show, The Resistance, is <laughs> for four snowflakes it's four people when i say snowflakes i mean left people people with good intentions people with my people the people yeah. who are, are trying to get it right and it's a, a critique a friendly critique of that of that righteousness that self-righteousness that we all feel when we've done something right or when we have the right opinion and holding people to a higher standard than just having the right opinion about treating people as people right so and he completely missed that yeah yeah because and he I think was blinded so by this identity that he'd put on me. Yeah, yeah. He just went, oh, this is who she is. She's a crybaby snowflake, lefty. Yeah, pro-socialist. Extreme. Blah, 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 yeah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, I I thought of for a number of days about whether I should reply to it or not because he wasn't calling me a cunt. <laughs> uh, he was sort of, I think, trying to engage with me and he'd sent me an email, which is not not a frictionless form of engagement. And I thought, well, okay, what I wanted to say was to you, this man, this quote-unquote socialist, is two-dimensional. He's a character in a fiction. To me, he's a human being that I knew as a person. And it's bananas to me that you would say to anybody about anybody that they deserve to have their fingers cut off. Yeah. How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> How dare you? You've never met him. You, do, you know. Yeah. I, that's terrifying that anyone would say that out loud, let alone committed to an email. Yeah. That they think anyone deserves to have over a disagreement of political opinion. Yeah, and I think that's one of the problems, I think, on both sides now, is that they'll take the identity or the opinion to its ultimate limit. Yeah. That, that, that if you say you're a feminist, they assume that you are a kill-all-man feminist. Yeah. If you, if you say that you are a conservative, I will assume that you are a Nazi and that your, you know, anti-immigrant attitude means that you want to have death camps. Well, also, there's the idea now that by having a differing opinion or following people even that have a differing opinion from you and kind of no platforming, that kind of thing... It's interesting because in America, and again, this will be something I'm talking about in the new show, but we've got this kind of no platforming in universities and 
stuff like that and it's kind of like and there's some debate on how much of a thing that is as well yeah yeah. well there there are definitely quarters that exist and I understand there's a line between hate speech and then you know I I get that but the idea that that you would know platform the idea that dangerous voices shouldn't be in school but dangerous weapons can be yeah like you don't like the idea of dangerous ideas but dangerous weapons are fine that's the biggest kind of like yeah yeah well this is what the, yeah i was thinking about the there's a problem of uh responsibility of attribution of blame because you know our justice system is predicated on responsibility so for example if you punch someone in the face you're not allowed to do that and you are punished for punching someone in the face yeah if you hire somebody else or convince somebody else to punch another person in the face you are also to blame we can track that responsibility but what if it's thousands of people sending one tweet right who's to blame for the thing that tips over into violence or suicide what's your personal responsibility yeah what is each individual's personal individual responsibility for that outcome what yeah how do you how do you hold the people of Germany accountable for the Holocaust? We're, we're not good at that. We blame Hitler. Like, we... We have to engage with people that we disagree with, though. We can't just pretend they don't exist. No. And there's... Because that's how the separation happens. That's how the isolation happens. The echo chamber of yeah. similar opinions. And I agree with you. I, I mean, I agree with you from my personal perspective, which is why I emailed this man back in reasonable tones and trying yeah. to explain what I thought he had gotten wrong. Yeah. Uh, and then blocked him. <laughs> um, but it, it's that thing of, I think we... I can understand why you don't want to. Yeah. You know, the emotional labour of having the same argument many times is exhausting. Yeah. Um, and particularly if the person you're having an argument with is having that argument to be annoying, they're not having it in good faith. Yeah. Like we're not having good faith exchanges as often as I would like. Yeah. It's, uh, which is hard, which is why I like doing, you know, doing it face-to-face if you can. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is that... Um, yeah, there's this fear. There's this fear of other people that they are the most extreme version of whatever opinion they're spouting. Yeah. Well, that video was so... There was nothing in it. It was so... Like, I ended up having to take the comments off of it. And I need to speak to The Economist about it as well. And I also need to look at my position because I... They asked me to do their big Open Futures event. And they had Steve Bannon on. Mm-hmm. And so then I had to go through the kind of thinking about, do I want to share a platform with Steve Bannon? Um, you know, and I didn't really want to share a platform with Steve Bannon. But what does it... again, what does But then my thought after that was, well, then he just gets heard and I don't. Yeah. And also, what does, what does share they, a platform with someone mean? There was yeah. a recent sort of slight controversy where somebody was on a judging panel with another judge with whom they disagreed, this other judge they thought had done some terrible things or made, said some terrible opinions or had a book that was criticised for being whatever it was. And that she, she re, re, redacted herself, uh, rescinded, what, what do you call it, recused herself from the judging panel. Right. Um, because she didn't want to be associated with this other judge. Right. Like, is that, 
is that what it is? Are we disassociating? Are we completely separating ourselves? I think it's this moral, it's trying to show that we have this moral high ground. And again, it's what I talked about in Bombshell, where, where, where I say, like, look, we want to be on the right side of history, but throwing other people under the bus doesn't automatically mean you get to get on it. It's almost by highlighting, going, I disassociate myself with this, means I'm great. But what if sometimes the fear of that is, oh, I've said the wrong thing before. I've yeah. not got it right, but I'm not going to acknowledge that. I'll just say this person, this person's got it wrong. Yeah, well, so we're I, all throwing I, each other under the bus rather than learning from mistakes, apologizing. There was a woman at a concert, I don't know whether you saw this recently, and I was like, perfect, that's how that should be. A woman got told off by an usher at a concert. I can't remember who the performer was maybe it was taylor swift or something and she was with her girlfriend yeah and they were like told she couldn't kiss her girlfriend it was that's kind of like homophobic usher and then afterwards she was like i don't i don't want this person sacked i want to have a conversation with them and she did and she was like please don't sack them because this is more progressive we can have a conversation i can tell them why what they did to me was wrong and it was prejudiced and they learn, and this person gets to keep their job. Yeah, yeah. And that is a bigger teaching moment than going, this usher was being homophobic, kick them out of a job, they can never work again because they made that mistake once. Yeah, I Do think you see if what you're... I mean? The posi- if you're a repeated offender of doing certain things, then that's very, very different. And if it's violent crime, then it's different. But if we have these cases where people are just not educated and need to be educated that's surely that's what we should be aiming for yeah the idea that people should know better i think is a dangerous idea yeah because uh, we are all the product of our environment if we're going to talk about privilege if we're going to talk about identities that are formed by experiences that we've had you need to think about that 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 not everybody has the same education. Not everyone has the same surrounding. People have different religious educations that mean that they deal with information in different ways critically. The information that people receive and the methods that they're taught for processing that information, those are all important. Yeah. You know, if, you're, if you've been told not to trust a source and then that source tells you that you know, you know what I yeah. mean? That yeah, well, our unconscious biases. Unconscious and conscious biases. Unconscious. Yeah, yeah. That, but that, I, I think that's progression. That's what we should be aiming towards. We should be aiming towards, and we're nowhere near this utopia where everyone ha- is on a level playing field. Yeah. And that's, those battles are being fought, but I do think they're very individual battles with nuance and with grey areas, and at the moment they're not being treated that way. Yeah. So and that's I, very dangerous because you... You stand to lose any progress you've made by... That's why what's happening with Me Too, you know, like the... Well, I, and I'll get a lot of shit for saying believe women, but I just think listen to women is better. Listen to women believe, is better. Yeah, listen to women is better because believe and, automatically assumes a guilt. Yeah. And you can see why people fear that. But if you say I'm listening... Yeah. That's and a, women can be assholes too. Yeah. Like women... Give women the credit of being able to be horrendous people as well. Yeah. And people yeah. are... But this is the thing that I was thinking about the other day of, of I would believe something that I read in the Scientific American more than I would believe something that I read on Breitbart. Yeah. Why? Because my dad has read the Scientific American and subscribed to it for many years and the people who are around me say that that is a better source. What if I'm getting the exact opposite information? How would I know that... What, inf- what information source do I have 
that yeah. would allow me to you know what I mean yes this, yeah. it's so selective the data that we're given and the ways in which we're told to that's a privilege that I have had yeah is to be told what kind of things are reliable and not and I know, I, I'm aware as well that privilege you don't kind of a lot of the time there's privileges that you don't even realise you have I was talking about this last night because I was at the comedy store and I do a show on a Tuesday sometimes called The Cutting Edge it's like a topical satirical show mm. and John who's run the show for years is in a wheelchair mm. now with his sort of degenerative illness and we were talking about wheelchairs and I sort of said in Edinburgh a couple of years ago someone emailed me going where are you going to be this year because I just need to know if I can come because I think I'd been at the stand the year before and it's not wheelchair accessible yeah and that was the first time I'm not in a wheelchair so I just hadn't thought about it I was like oh my god how I've not been making my shows accessible. Yeah. Like, but this, this person literally cannot come to see my show, even if they love my comedy. So I think I went to the Gilded Balloon that year, and I was like, oh, they have a lift. Like, and people can get around. This building's really accessible. But and now I always have that in the back of my mind, but it took someone to highlight it to me. To So this is the thing. My mum was in a, a mobility scooter and a walking stick for the last five or ten years of her life. Um so it is something that occurs to me. I always look for layaways. I always look for disabled toilets. I have like a, an uncanny ra- radar for a toilet in any venue. Um, but I remember in, in Melbourne the first year that I was uh, in, I was in the Forum Theatre and it was not wheelchair accessible. And they do one wheelchair accessible night in the full month that you can ask for if you want it to be that. But for me, it was the first time I'd been offered a festival-managed venue. It was a, a step forward in my career. You don't get a lot of negotiating room. Yeah. And I just remember the, the what how I felt about that of like, it is at, the, at that point that you go, well, what sacrifice am I willing to make to make this wheelchair accessible? Yeah. What And where do my own needs supersede that of? <laughs> yeah. Good intentions and ethical choices. Yeah, and it's, that was a that was a really confronting thing to have to think about that this is not something I can insist on can I work around it am I okay to say well I'd like more wheelchair accessible nights can I do that or you know what can I do to make this not feel like throwing people under the bus in order to further my own career yeah but it's a big ask you know it's um there was there's sometimes there are the things that are so simple that last night one of the ones that I had was oh like um, audio descriptions of pictures on Twitter someone had mentioned it to me mm. a while back through my feed of going if you switch that on then if a blind person is on Twitter they can have a description of of your picture or a meme yeah and you go oh that's just such a small thing it makes no difference to me but makes a huge difference to visually impaired people yeah that I just hadn't thought about um and I had the same sort of dilemma with this year at Leeds and Reading Festival. I had a BSL interpreter. Yeah. And I've never had that before for my stand-up. Um, but I got an email through from the organisers going, we've had quite a few requests specifically for your show. Would you be up for having an interpreter? And I was like, yeah. And then I was like, oh. Then, then my self-preservation kicked in because I went, 
do you know what those are really hard those are quite hard gigs those can be hard gigs because they're festival gigs you've got another tent playing music so I find it hard to hear myself on stage sometimes let alone gauge what the audience is doing let alone throw in another kind of spanner into the works of having someone else on stage with me interpreting throwing my rhythm off am I going to slow down am I going to are they going to be watching the interpreter or are they going to be watching me so my first instinct was yes I should do this then I went oh it might make it hard for me and then I sort of came back and I said to Paul and he was like you've got to do it he's like this is the kind of stuff you talk about and I was like yeah I know and instantly when they asked I was like yes and then I was like but then this other side of me kicked in this selfish side that said you know what if this makes it more difficult for me and then after going through that I came out on the other side again of going of course I'll do it of course I'll do it yeah people have asked and I don't want to limit what I do so that those people yeah you know but it um, is but and and, it uh, is lying to pretend that that isn't a big thing yes yeah like it that is worth acknowledging and on one hand yeah it's the bare minimum and on the other hand no it's actually a it is an effort it's an effort just because those they're not like a gig in a club room where you go I know I know all the parameters of this everything's set up for you to win whereas sometimes at a festival it can be set up for you to fail it's quite hard sometimes people are wandering in and out of the tent when you, you know always with these festival gigs I end up having a full tent they play it outside people come in and by the end you're like oh now it's full when I'm leaving yeah yeah <laughs> you know? yeah like so so that you're already working against a few things but I'm I'm really glad that I did it and it was interesting I was like I learned for doing it next time yeah um and probably both my interpreters didn't get to spend time with me before yeah so they didn't know my speed you know and I can be quite fast on stage sometimes I could slow it down but also it was quite nice to play with the uh, the person who was doing the interpreting to see what the sign language was for certain things yeah um in fact Ed Byrne has a brilliant routine in his show which you've probably seen about what the sign language is for Trump so when that comes out, go check that out. But it was it was it it was re- it was it was fun, kind of seeing, you know, what certain gestures or words would be. But it it just changes the it changes it. It does change. And sometimes it. it's good to push yourself to kind of go, you know. So I think I came down on the right side of that. But like you're saying, to pretend that that the, the dilemma doesn't exist. Yeah. That there's not some kind of sacrifices to be made. Yeah, and which is why when people say, oh, what do you want a cookie to male feminists or people who are trying to help women in the industry or whatever it is, like, oh, what do you want a cookie? You know, it's been so hard for us for so long. I think it's worth sometimes giving a cookie. Yeah. Like, it's, it's worth acknowledging when people have made an effort, even if it's an effort that they should never have had to make because the system has been unequal and so on and so forth. There were, I mean, there were loads of comics who, when that rule came in at the BBC, when well, it's good for you, but I mean, I'll never get on that show now. Yeah. And you go, I wasn't the one stopping you. Like, but they can't <laughs> see that. All they can see is now the chances they had were reduced. What they don't realise was the odds were so greatly in their favour in the first place. Yeah. That it's about going, oh, we've just got to be better then. You've just got to be the best. Yeah. Which, which is, is how women have got so good because we've had to literally be undeniable. That's what I was told. I was told very early on, you have to be 30% better than any man at your level. Yeah. To get the same opportunities I don't know how true that is now I hope I think it's changed somewhat I don't know if it's changed now to massively favoring women but I think there's the perception that it has 
Yeah, it definitely it definitely hasn't. We're still like so far behind in so many aspects. And then but I we're just so don't grateful as well. Like people are like, oh, you know, now there's a now they're looking for women. And that feels like, wow, now they're looking for me. Now they're yeah. trying to find me. Yeah. And you go, well, they were always looking for acts. Yes. Yeah. Like, uh, they were yeah. always looking for acts. And it's just I didn't count as an act before. Yeah, yeah. I counted as a specialty. Mm. Well, that's what was frustrating about this kind of video because I just, I end up, like I say, I ended up having the YouTube comments switched off. There was like a campaign to downvote it as soon as it came out, <laughs> which made me really sad. Like, and the, the one thing I did have was this time not engaging with it. What I did have was a lot of my followers kind of going on and replying to people. But in the end, we took the comments off because I was like, I hope you get your clip cut off. Ugh. I was getting sent stuff like that or like, you know, this fat bitch who can't get laid is moaning because other people are getting laid. You Have know, they seen and photographs of you? And there's, well, there's a nuance in there as well. There's a bit where I talk, I do numbers at the end. They're like, this is not true. And I'm like, it's The Economist. They fact check everything rigorously. They will not put anything in that's not fact checked. So I can't help it if me doing facts is triggering to you. Yeah. It's a fact that in 2015, a 12-year-old girl got married in America. That's a fact. Go look it up. Yeah. You know, mixed in with my personal they didn't like that it was mixed in with like, you can skew anything with personal facts and I'm like well I'm a woman so therefore my data is still the data of being a woman yeah. <laughs> you know, of kind of going uh, uh, 14 you know is the is the age I first became aware of the, the male gaze you know and the terrifying realisation that not all men want to be your friends and then later on I talk about the seven signs of ageing and say is seven is the amount of signs you must fight in an apocalyptic showdown lest you become irrelevant you know and, and then I talk about five being the number of times I was shouted at on the street last week and this is where I say nuance comes in because I say it used to be a lot more and the fact that part of me misses that means it was so ingrained to who I am for so long that my only value was how I looked yeah. whether or not I was considered attractive yeah I'll have I, to tell you about the new song I wrote uh, for my new show um, after we after we turn off the thing, but yeah, it is. It's uh, there's a really interesting thing about what you were saying before about engaging with your opposition and talking to people, and the, this idea of not having honest, honestly open to discussion people engaging with you. Those people didn't want to be corrected. They didn't want to have a conversation about the facts. They just wanted to use you as a stalking horse for your stalking horse punching bag straw straw woman straw woman <laughs> yes you are you are immediately laden with all of the baggage that they have about every woman from the mother who didn't love them enough to the girl who didn't want to go out with them on a date every single you just become this uh, this symbol this stepping on I remember I've said this before but Adam Richards who's a Adam Richard who's a comedian in Australia mm talked about how he tells men comedians male comedians that they need to wear a button up, button up shirt on stage they need yeah. to dress neutral that they shouldn't wear jeans and a sloppy t-shirt because they need to show respect to their to their audiences and that that everything you wear on stage is a costume and i said well what's neutral for a woman and he said unfortunately the female body is a costume the moment someone sees your female body they assume that you've done it on purpose Whatever yes. it is, if you're yeah. fat, if you're thin, if you're beautiful, if you're ugly, they think that it's a choice. If you have choice. big boobs, you chose them. Yeah, and that it's a statement of your personality or your personhood in, in a way. And that's re- 
it's uh, I don't know if it's possible to unpack that. People argue it's against really, really unpacking smart. it by reference to evolutionary biology, which is always fun but weak. Yeah, you know, there's plenty of things we're evolved to do that we do not do. Yeah, you know that we we kind of. If you want to argue for evolutionary biology dictating the way we behave now, then you need to stop using fire and tools and the wheel and your iPhone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a really kind of astute thing for him to say. But again, it's because he's not, he is someone who is outside of as a gay man. Yeah. He He can see that from the outside. Yeah, that different perspective. Um, And it's a really kind of astute comment. Because it shouldn't be. No one agrees that that should be the case. Yes. But I get exactly what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah. And and then the other thing that I was thinking about was this study done in 2002 in Yale. And then they followed it up with a, a University of Leeds study in uh, much more recently. And I'm going to explain the study to you and it's going to be really boring and dry. But I think it's really informative and interesting. So <laughs> it's my podcast. Shut up. Um, the study in 2002 was about people's overestimating their ability that their their understanding of a subject by um by reference to their recognition of a subject so you would ask someone do you think you know how a traffic light works and they'd go yes i know traffic lights uh do you think you know how an airport works yeah i know airports but then if you ask them to actually explain it they realize that their information is incredibly limited, limited <laughs> yeah. that they don't know what systems are in place how uh, how you would and then it becomes much more complicated the moment you start looking at it and the one that was done in Leeds to follow up on this research was about political opinions that people who would support a policy on the face of it don't know what the implications of that policy are necessarily what it would mean where the money is coming from where the money is going to who the people are that it's affecting how it would have to go about then they think it's a simple thing, you know, for for the right wing. Well, people should pay for their own healthcare. Duh. Right. I have personal. Every people have a personal responsibility. Or for the left wing, we should let immigrants in. It's the humane thing to do. And then, if you ask them how they would do it in a step by step way, they can't answer. It's it's much harder to answer. And so to. I, I don't know what the... I mean, the implications of that are. No one wants to say are. they don't know. No one wants to That's say the they don't point, know. That's the point, No one wants to say, I don't know how I feel about that because I don't understand it. Yeah, but then there's, there was a further study, and I, I don't know how to reference this or cite this, but it was on fundamentalism, fundamentalist beliefs, extreme beliefs. That is one of the only ways you can get someone to, to question their belief. You don't, if you question their belief, they become defensive. Yeah. If you attack them with logic, they become even more confirmed in their wrong belief whether it's anti-vaxxers or that the earth is flat yeah if you ask them to explain how it is how it works the exact and keep asking them questions that's the only way that they will change their position or that's a much right. more effective i'm sure there so have been some people who've changed their minds by being shouted at but that when it becomes your identity so if you're a flat earther, your identity becomes conspiracy theorist. So if someone says something about conspiracy theories, you feel personally attacked. Yeah. Because that's who you are, as opposed to going, oh, they're just attacking some ideas that I hold. Yes. Have I taken this idea that I've held and made it my 
personality. Yeah, that Paul like, Graham thing, call. hold your identity loosely. Yeah, right, know? yeah, yeah. So that's, that's yeah, strong opinions loosely held. Or yep. what is, yeah. So, so the idea that that is, and kind of, I guess, there was an interesting thing recently about the death of scepticism someone had done a thread about, like, kind of stuff that used to get called out regularly before now doesn't kind of really get challenged like the flat earther stuff yeah like the anti-vax stuff like all that kind of genuine argument with someone who told me that australia didn't exist yeah i've heard that one before that's a great that's a great one i like that the idea being that people get on a plane and get out in america and everyone's playing australians yeah Yeah. Are you part of the matrix? Have you been programmed to have believe? I be, have, yeah, have I been tricked? And it, it's, I had this conversation for maybe 15 minutes and by the end I was like, I mean, I can't prove it. <laughs> like, I can't. <laughs> but I, I think I'm Australian. Everything I've ever experienced has told me I'm Australian. You get out of a plane in America. That's the basis of that. You get out of a plane. Yeah, the, 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 the earth is flat and that that anyone who is from the underside of the earth is lying or an actor. Yeah. Or brainwashed. I often tell people that about you. <laughs> You're lying, an actor, and, and brainwashed. brainwashed. <laughs> yeah, I haven't yeah. walked around the coast of Australia. I'm not Matthew Flinders' cat. I, <laughs> I mean, you, there's a few, isn't there? There's the chemtrails in planes. Yes. I kind of think those ones are a bit easier maybe to believe. I can see where... Yeah. The idea of that would come from. But this is the, the why other, is. The, the, the two towers, uh, air fuel, jet fuel doesn't melt steel beams. Yeah, yeah. And they say they look, you look at the specs on the thing and you look at the amount of airline fuel and you do the maths and it doesn't work out right. Yeah. And I say, you know, I would far more likely to believe that either there was cheap cheapness in the construction someone cut corners in the construction they weren't made of what you thought they were made of some sort of air vector thing happened which made the flames much hotter than they should be like you know dresden bombings or whatever yeah i would i would so much be i'd be so much more likely to believe a human incompetence belief than a hum, massive human competence argument <laughs> yeah. that there's all massive these people i have a theory that it's the a great re- name for a sex tape <laughs> I have a reason. I have a Santa. Santa is the one conspiracy, right? And it teaches you early that it can happen. That everyone in the world is lying to you. Yes. Yeah. Everyone. Yeah. But other than that, I can't really think of that many where it hasn't been either human greed or human incompetence. Incompetence is the flat Earth thing, isn't it? But it's just kind of not being challenged in the same way anymore. Yeah, yeah, and some people think it's fun to play into it as well. I know plenty of people who are on flat Earth groups because they think it's funny. Yeah, to trick other people who believe it, and then you've got a whole community of people who think they're tricking other people. But who's really being tricked? Who's really being tricked? Who's tricking the trickers? It's like who's watching the Watchmen? I'm being tricked into into thinking I'm Australian. I'm sort of yeah, I'm sort of fascinated. And then a lot of the times when I argument, argument when When I argue, when I argument, which is what I call it, or when I have an argument or or a debate, sometimes I come from my gut because it's always from my gut about my feelings, and then I have to unpack it and kind of go, are my feelings fair here? Yeah, are they based in? 
reality or are they based in, you know? Yeah, I'm split on this. I have two very strong, potentially entirely contradictory views about feelings. Uh, One is that feelings are real. They're absolutely real. You know, when you are grieving, that is a thing. You cannot function as well. You are incapable of operating intellectually at the same level. Just being normal takes a huge amount of energy and effort. You are impacted. You're, you know, even your numbers are impacted. The amount of productivity, if you're going to yeah. bring everything down to that. But, but also, how, how much are feelings transitioned into a biological reality? For example, a feeling of being tired is also accompanied with physical time, signs of being tired? Yes, yeah. Yeah, and so so I believe that these things are real. And at the same time, I believe that you have some responsibility for your feelings. That there are anger and outrage, for example, is something that you can choose to cultivate or not cultivate. Yeah. That that you can be hurt by something or or affected by something, but then there's a some you bear some responsibility for how much it hurts you. Right. But I don't know how much responsibility you bear for how much it hurts you, given that I also believe that feelings are real and you need to be careful to speak in a way that someone else can hear. Um, I believe both of those things, and they are sort of contradictory. of the facts not feeling brigade, that alt-right kind of catchphrase that's bandied around a lot, which I was interested when Jordan Peterson was on Question Time, and I was like, he's so popular, isn't he, with that hard-right facts not feelings, and you go, but all of his kind of stuff is moralized moralizing based out the fact that he's religious yeah which is all feeling feeling and faith yeah so all of your stuff is about feelings and the people that like you are the people that say feelings don't count yeah, you yeah, know yeah. but also feelings are facts yeah you, you've just put less weight on those facts than these other facts yeah because and purely because you don't have good measurement um tools for feelings yeah like it is difficult to quantify them. We need to so create you would rather an, discount them entirely than factor them in and have them mess up your neat maths. Um, we need to get an, an emotionometer. Yeah, but really. <laughs> we, need to, we need to get a way of measuring. But really, like corporate life, where money is the only thing that can be measured and they're only just now starting to, to uh, assess things like job satisfaction in terms of, again, they've managed to figure out a way to turn it into money figures, how, much, how, much, how many work days are lost to depression, how, how much productivity is lost to a lack of sleep or a lack of self-care. Those things, because we've finally managed to translate some of them into numbers, are now being taken seriously. Yeah. But that's just like... Well, it's like mental health versus any other kind of health. Yeah. What you can see where you can see a disease in the body yes. versus what you can't see. The fact that we can't understand the brain very well. Yeah. And therefore it's seen as a, as a lie or, a, you know, from, by many people it doesn't exist. It's a people make mental health issues in themselves. But like there are dogs that can smell cancer right? Early stages of cancer, they can diagnose cancer. And cats as well, I think, as well. I remember Jacques Barrett had a joke about that, saying he doesn't like cats, but no cat has a job. Some of them can smell cancer, but I think that's more of a hobby. (laughs) (laughs) It was a great joke. Uh, Shout out to Jacques Barrett. But so this can be smelled. Cancer can be smelled in the body. We know that. We have these measurement tools, dogs and cats, and now we know we have enough other measurement tools to do that. It's raining cancer, cats and dogs. Imagine if medical science had a tool for smelling stuff. 
rather than just a microscope. Right. How how much would we be focused on how things smell? You know, you know what yeah, I mean. We are yeah. so our idea of what's real and our idea of what's well, a smell is something that pulls all the other senses together. A smell is like the most evocative thing that you yeah, can have. Like, but one we of don't have a good way data measuring. assessment yeah. collation tool for it, and so it is discounted. Well, also because it's highly subjective. Yeah. So that smell to me, are we smelling the same smell? Are you smelling that creme brulee that just came out? Yeah. Are you smelling the same thing as me? We can't know if yeah, we are. But also sight is incredibly subjective. That's why we have glasses. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, some people see things in a fuzzy way their whole lives and they don't know because they haven't been assessed. But because, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. So that, that came out. We smell it. I don't know what you smell. But then I could smell creme brulee and I could go... Oh, that reminds me of being in my sister's bedroom when I was 15 and she had a perfume, a body cream that smelled a bit like this. And there I am and the sun's coming in and I remember, da, 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 and it brings up, it triggers like yeah. 20, 30 different memories. And for you, creme brulee triggers a different 20, 30 memories. And those could be horrific. Yeah. You could be like, yeah, I hate the-, the smell of it. It makes me feel sick. The crust on the top reminds me of a scab had on my knee yeah. like I used to I used to love jelly I used to love jelly and then that's the only thing they serve for desserts in hospitals, in hospitals right and now jelly's dumb and now I'm not a big fan of jelly yeah which is a shame because I love jelly and it's wibble wobble wibble wobble <laughs> but the, this is this is one of these things when it comes to these facts not feelings people even though I I do agree that we need to be data-based. I do agree that we need to hold ourselves accountable for our feelings. We need yeah. to question our feelings and, and probe them and, and see if they're fair or not. At the same time, feelings are facts. They're just facts that we don't have a good data measurement system for. Until the emotionometer. That we can't With the emotionometer is coming. Yeah. Someone make it. Just have a little arrow. Yeah. <laughs> And it just goes from the basic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, early research was done with uh, in comedy shows with those clapometers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, the worst shows are ones that have clapometers. No offense if you have a show with a clapometer, but seriously. Whoop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whoop. Um, all right. So we have gone over long as always, as ever. Um, where can people find you online? Uh, so Twitter at Tiff Stevenson, which I'm still, Twitter's still sort of king for me at the moment or queen to be non-gender specific just because I can do jokes on there and I like words. But I am kind of slowly working out Instagram. I'm still not very good on it, but that's Tiff Stevenson comic. So find me on those and I have a mailing list on my website, which hasn't been updated for a millennia uh and also on vimeo you can download my show madman which it's is all about show. identity actually yeah that was when we first met so that was yeah. when i was doing that show at the stand so that's all about oh, identity you saw it twice you saw it twice yes yeah I, did. I bought your banjo and we should have got you to play during the jack daniels bit um so yeah um so you can download that and so, you know it costs a fiver and look i want to be yacht rich off of it that hasn't happened yet but i'm confident one day one my day. feelings tell me <laughs> which are facts trust your gut man I'll get a million out of it thank you so much um, you're welcome I will see you again soon as soon as possible bye
This top is mistress that we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the doffers at every frame. Loudy rifle, doll, loudy rifle day. On Monday morning, when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, damn you, doffers, cry up your hands. Loudy rifle, doll, loudy rifle day. And when the boss he looks round the door, tie our ends up, doffers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally rifle, doll, lally rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lally rifle, doll, lally rifle, day.